This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate, the dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. And I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle. So today we're going to be talking about why offices are so cold in Texas and how the coldness of your office could not only be running your company's energy bill up unnecessarily, but also result in some gender disparities and comfort in your office and the success of the return to office uh, push in the post-pandemic world. Yeah, right now I'm sitting in the Houston Chronicles office podcast studio. I have my little office blanket with me. I have two office blankets I also have an office blanket and a a tea kettle that I use when I get too cold. Sometimes we go into, when it's really cold, you can go into the stairwell (laughs) where it's not air conditioned. I've had this issue of being cold and other coworkers complaining about being cold too. And other places I've worked in Houston, like I worked in an office in the Galleria, same thing. Uh, You know, men and women complain. It's mostly women, but, but it turns out there is something more to this. So research has shown there is a gender disparity and thermal comfort within the office. Uh, and there's different hypotheses about why this might be. Uh, but basically, the, the findings suggest that, you know, a lot of office buildings are running their offices um, too cold. So it results in discomfort not only for some employees, but also excess energy usage, particularly during the hot summer months. This is an issue when, you know, the grid is running so much and we've had record heat and, you know, we're trying to figure out how to conserve energy. So we'll get into some of that, more of that discussion later in this episode. I'll dive into an ta- uh, interview I had with John Myers, who is the regional director of a property management platform for the real estate firm JLL. He is based in Dallas, but, you know, is familiar with Houston. And so we'll t- he talks more about kind of how property managers and building owners are trying to balance employee comfort with energy efficiency amid the return to office push. But first, I wanted to chat with you, Rebecca, um, about another interview I had with a professor at University of California, Berkeley's Center for the Built Environment. Um, his name is Stefano Schivon. I'm sorry for probably mispronouncing his name, um, but he's a professor of architecture and civil, in, uh, civil environmental engineering at UC Berkeley. And he has studied a lot this concept of overcooling, um, which was a relatively new concept for me. Overcooling basically means that you're, you know, there's ex- excess cooling in your office. And that's either because it's like a poorly designed HVAC system or it's like not being properly managed. Um, so back in 2021, Stefano and his colleagues actually analyzed like 38,000 responses uh, to surveys on building temperatures across like over 400 office buildings in the US. And they found that 
about 64% of women were unhappy with their building temperatures. And of those people, 76% said it was too cold, particularly in the summer. And then for men, 36% of men were, were also not happy with their building temperatures. And of that group, only 24% thought it was too cold in the summer. So that like kind of shows you an initial like gender difference. Uh, then they went and scraped actually Twitter data, like 16,000 tweets, I believe, that were people basically just complaining about buildings or offices being too cold or too hot. They once again found there was, you know, a tendency for women to talk about being cold more. But also, interestingly, they found that people in the South were much more likely to complain about it being too cold during the warmer months than any other region nationally, which is kind of a catch, you know, seems counterintuitive. The South's probably hotter during the summer, but yet Southerners are complaining more about it being cold. So it's not just in our heads. Um, and the researchers kind of speculated a lot of that had to do with the humidity in the South. Um, you know, buildings have to run colder to kind of combat the humidity. But it, it turns out sometimes they're going too far in the direction of cooling. Yeah, so maybe what we need are dehumidifiers. Dehumidifiers. That's I like yeah. that. I mean, it, it does feel like people are sometimes treating their ACs as dehumidifiers when Yes, when and not. I think that's definitely the case. So I was going to play some clips for you. The thermal comfort issue has been there for many decades. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fundamental problem has not been solved. So what is this fundamental problem? Uh, right now, everyone in the office gets exposed to the same temperature. But we are different. Uh, we are physiologically different among people. We are. Uh, we have different needs. We have different expectation. We dress differently. We do different activity inside the building. And it would be like to say, everybody needs to wear the same shoe size because that's the shoe size that fit the average person. And yes, for a certain part of the population, that would be fine. And we measure that around forty percent of the people are happy with their thermal environment. 20% are okay, they, they are not unhappy and they're not happy. And then you have 40% that are unhappy because the environment doesn't fit uh, their needs. And that has been true before the pandemic. And the issue is still now. Maybe it can be enhanced that people start to get used to have a good control because at home you can control what you need. If you can afford it, you can most of the time create an environment that is um, comfortable for you. So first of all, what we are sure is that the disparity is there. And our paper is an example of proving with different types of techniques that uh, um, particularly in summer, there is a disproportional effect of this unhappiness on uh, women. And so that is the solid aspect. The unfairness is there. And we know that, you know, if you're not comfortable, you have a lot of, you know, you're distracted, you're less productive, you can focus less. Um, why that is happening is what is yet unknown. So there are a lot of hypotheses. So I can mention some of these hypotheses. One is connected to women has less power. And therefore, uh, someone with more power, often it happened that people in the perimeter of the building, the ones that are close to the facade, the ones that have access to the windows, 
tend to be warmer because close to a window in Houston, it will be hotter. Given that that position is also associated with power, people with the, you know, the worst office in the building is the corner office because it's the hottest, but it's also the one with the best view. And therefore, the boss is there. The boss wants to be comfortable. All the others suffer. So that's an example of an hypothesis. Another hypothesis is the way that we dress. Less in the United States, more in other parts of the world may be different. So, for example, the likelihood to have your lower legs exposed or having open shoes increase the fact that your extremity, your hand and your feet are the first things that get cold in a cold environment. And if those are exposed, there is a higher chance that you will feel uncomfortable. And if people can dress as they like, you can counteract that. If people are forced to dress with a, for, you know, for a company code or for cultural expectation, that could be a problem. That could this be- would be like, like uh, requiring men to wear suits. Yes. Um, all the time, you know, which are generally keep you warmer. And with, of course, yeah. you need cooler temperature, yes. There are also some more physiological reasons. For example, uh, there is a higher chance to have a tendency to have a cold hand and cold feet in female for the way that our body is structured. Um so the reasons could be many, but the key point is that the problem is there. And there are solutions. That's the issue that is, it does not matter much which specific reasons we have, but we have solution. Um, let me mention another reasons. Is that if you are too cold, we have ways to make people okay. Like for example, you can wear gloves or you can take a jacket. On the opposite, if you are too hot, we don't have many easy ways. For example, you cannot remove clothing above a certain level. And in some cultural context, sweating and show that you're sweating is considered not acceptable. And so it's overall agreed that it's better that you are cold and then you dress up more with a jumper in winter in summer then that you see that you're sweating in front of other people. At least, I would say, in, in some environmental, in some cultural context. The, the reality is saying is that oftentimes it's the women that are having to compromise. So I guess I'm curious, like, what do you think about, uh, about, about that angle of it? I mean, I feel like this often comes up, and I feel like on its face, it's unfair. Fair, but it is hard to work when you're too hot. And I would say even in our office place, I mean, I think in our office place, it's really because it's either like too cold or it's kind of muggy and it feels like there's not enough air in the building. Like it feels like, you know, like, so I do think, I do think that's what they're trying to control for. They're just trying to keep the air moving. They're just trying to run the air and that results in it being cold. And I feel like in our office, are there people who are comfortable? I don't know. You know, and John Myers will get into this later, but he's saying like, it's also like an air quality issue. Like you have to have like a certain amount of circulation, um, you know, so so that's a lot of times some buildings are relying on that. Um, but uh, I thought that Stefano had an interesting, um, oh, I guess before I get into that, there was a study published in 2015 in Nature Climate Change. And it kind of 
was uncovering this, and it was covered by a lot of news outlets, so this is why I bring it up. Basically, this standard model that was used to set what a, quote, normal thermal comfort is, what, what should be normal in buildings, was based on calculations um, developed in the 1960s, designed for men that were age 40 and about 154 pounds. That was kind of picked up a lot. And, and that study kind of showed that there is different metabolic rates on average males. Um, uh, on average, the standard system overestimates female metabolic rates by 35%, it says. Um, Stefano was saying that the, the problem with that study is, um, yes, there's different standards, um, but it almost doesn't matter what the standards, the formulas are, because the reality is it's mostly just at the property level, people managing it and how it's actually being implemented. The one thing that he brought up, he did have um, a solution. So this is, here's a clip of him talking about that. My work has been showing that there is a solution. You increase the temperature in the space. The people that are hot, you give them a fan. It's affordable, it's, it's comfortable, and you also encourage them to say, you know, maybe you can use a, a cool T-shirt. Eh, that You don't need a tie, you don't need a jacket. The combination of these two factors, I noticed that allow the slightly warmer temperature that make the one that feel cold okay. And I hope that people will start to say, you know, in summer, it's okay to be a little bit warm. You can use a fan, you can dress up lighter. It's really unfair to make people cold in summer because that's a waste of energy. You pollute the world, you make people uncomfortable, and you're unfair in the way that you make people uncomfortable because females are subject to that more than males. So Stefano actually also just published a study last month where they looked at offices in Singapore. And what they did is they um, ran, they had some office buildings that were trying to like investigate how to be more energy efficient. And they raised the temperature of the office buildings by like the equivalent of four to five degrees Fahrenheit. They let employees control ceiling fans. They gave them, I think, or no, they may have given everyone individualized desk fans. So people had ability to control their own fans. And they found that, they found that just having that airflow alone and that individualized control allowed people to feel comfortable despite the fact that the overall temperature of the building was higher. And at the same time, it dramatically reduced the energy consumption by about like 30, 32%. Um, and he found that so for every one degree increase in temperature, there was a 7% decrease in energy usage. Um, so that that was, that one was just, um, that's what it was just published. And I thought that was an interesting case study because Singapore, you know, like Houston, it's super hot and, and humid. So, you know, his solution is basically like, why you try like changing the dress, you know, allowing people to dress more casually, but also fans, you know, just having the overall temperature be hotter and, and doing fans. So, I mean, it sounds silly, but <laughs> I thought that was an interesting, um, interesting, like, solution. And I guess I would be curious if I've never been in an office where everyone has their own desk fan. <laughs> Me neither. I feel like it wouldn't be bad. I think there just also needs to be air circulation in these gigantic yeah. concrete buildings. There needs to be like fresh air. So I don't know if there's a way to like have the air circulate without the air. air 
it always being um, chilled air. You know what I mean? Like if if you could have the air circulate so the air doesn't feel stale, um, you know, maybe take some humidity out, then I feel like the fan thing would totally work. And I feel like it would be great because a lot of times for our jobs, we need to run outdoors, you know, like <laughs> as reporters, you need to be able to be outdoors and it's uh, crazy to be dressing for like, what what temperature do you think it is? Which we think it's like, it's in the 60s, right? Um, it feels like it's in the 60s, but I don't know exactly what it is. Um, Interestingly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Stefano was saying on average, um, you know, office buildings tend to run between 70 and 75 degrees. I queried a lot of um, a lot of landlords and um, one that came back uh, was Brookfield. They have 10.3 million square feet of office space in Houston across 10 towers. It's a lot of space. They said their um, their building temperatures range between seventy to seventy four degrees, depending on the time of year and the weather, which doesn't sound awful. But what was interesting was John Myers was saying that, like, I thought that okay, return to office. People aren't really coming in on Mondays and Fridays, so can't they run their AC? You know, can't they let it get warmer on Mondays and Fridays and save on their energy bill? And he was saying in practice that doesn't really happen. There's always like. 10 people in the office building, right? This is me, you know, kind of jumping off of what he said, but there's always a few people. And, you know, if you get 10 complaints <laughs> that it's sweltering hot on Monday and Friday, you know, like it's just, it's almost too hard to just like manage kind of that balance, particularly when you have like such a huge building. So now we're going to be diving into my interview with John Myers of JLL, and he'll talk about, uh, you know, how different tenants and companies are trying to manage employee comfort with energy efficiency um, as more companies go back to the office um, amid record heat waves. I've been meaning to write about this for a long time, the topic of like energy use and like, well, air conditioning, particularly in the summer. And I don't understand why some buildings feel like so freezing. And then sometimes you go to other places and you're like dying. And maybe it was last month or the month before, um, there was one day when the AC wasn't fully functioning at George Bush airport. And then I go to my office and I'm like putting on a sweater. And so it's like, <laughs> it confounds me. So I've always just kind of like wondered about that. It's really a fascinating topic and I, I'm glad you're exploring it. We kind of look at this in, in really a number of different areas, but one yeah. is technology and one is utilities, obviously. And I think going back to your experience in the different buildings really highlights the fact that although sort of all the commercial space and occupied space kind of feels the same in the sense that you look out your window and, you, you know, you see all these office buildings and, and generically they look the same. Um, but the reality is, is that every building is different. Um, it's constructed differently. It's got a different system. It's got different occupancy. It's probably got a different age. It's got different technology and how it's managed. And so there's a lot of complexity in cooling commercial spaces. And so in embedded within that, you mentioned the return to office. And so we don't have clarity of data in that, but clearly work from home has an impact on utility usage and sustainability and everything. We're throwing out some numbers and we're just talking out loud here. But let's say there's 10,000 people in Texas working from home today. 
Most people, when they leave their home and go to work, they're going to turn their thermostat up a few degrees. You know, if you had those 10,000 people back in the office and their homes, you know, 10,000 homes were a few degrees warmer during the day, you know, what material impact does that have on our usage? You know, there's no way to objectively get the data for that. But intuitively, you would think, yeah, it's probably less efficient at the peak of summer for you know, thousands of people to be working from home instead of in in office buildings because office buildings are more efficient on a per person basis than a home is. Well, I mean, is that just because the commercial building owner is going to be incentivized to make their building as efficient as possible? You know, obviously you can't always install all the latest bells and whistles in energy efficiency. Um, but like, for example, if I have a window that maybe doesn't quite close or, you know, something like I might as a homeowner, not necessarily like take care of it right away or, you know, whatever. It, it, I'm just giving that as an example. Like, is that part of the reason why residential is just inherently less efficient? Well, I would say that any multi-story building is more efficient than any single occupier structure, especially like a single family home is less efficient than a condominium or an office building just because of the construction and how all that works. I would say to answer your question, so electricity is typically the single largest expense line item in any kind of high rise or commercial building. So there's been attention focused on that for for decades. This is not new. Building owners have tried to be efficient in their energy usage for a very long time. And and there's there's hope that AI can add even another incremental layer of efficiency to that um, over time. We're not there yet. And again, the the reality is is that every building has a different system. So there's there's no one-size-all technology that can solve that problem. But yes, building owners have been and continue to be very focused on efficiency in their electricity efficiency in their buildings. And a big part of that is air conditioning. It's also lighting. It's also, you know, even shades, you know, make sure that if you have a West facing building that your shades are down in the afternoon, Mm. Uh, just every little thing you can do. This is one thing I've wondered with return to office in general, if you have people going into work or going into the office two days a week or three days a week or whatever, that seems to be the common thing at least in Houston, you know, at least one day where you're off. So in the one day where you're where you're working from home, but maybe like one person goes in, you know, like, or two people go in, like, how does how does the building manager plan for that? I mean, do you have to, for example, if you have a 300,000 square foot building, how do you avoid air conditioning an entire building if only like you know, 5% of it is being used one day? Do you just kind of like modulate the temperature or... That's a real challenge. And going back to your sense in different buildings, how that whether it feels warm or cold, uh, again, there's complexity in that because in Houston, you have a lot of humidity. So one of the more important things of how you feel on the temperature is the humidity level. And so the humidity level is controlled by the air conditioning. So there are a, there are ways to reduce the humidity and you don't have to lower the temperature as much. So your building might feel more comfortable at 74 degrees with a lower humidity than it would at 72 degrees or 71 degrees with a higher humidity. So those are challenges that every building 
those challenges are magnified by the f- occupancy fluctuations. But the reality is, is that those the, that the occupancy fluctuations don't have a dramatic impact on how the air conditioning system is run. It's much more by the temperature and what the temperature is like in the morning and in the afternoons. So we really have to anticipate what the temperature is going to be like when we bring on the building systems because we don't want to run them any more than necessary. But if you get behind, it's really hard to catch up. Most systems have to stay ahead of the temperature curve. And once you get behind, it's going to be a problem. So if you wait too long to get your air conditioning system running, then it's hard to catch up. So I guess our building owners changing how they go about planning the heating and cooling to try to anticipate like usage, like can they say, oh, well, you know, maybe on Friday, since only like two people come in, we can run the building a little warmer and save a little bit on energy. Or or is that just not even part of the conversation? <laughs> um, so the, the bigger system is when the, let's say your building is run by chilled water systems, which is the most common for office buildings. That system's going to come on at a certain time of day, regardless of how many people are in the building. So it's just going to be an an incremental difference based on sensors in the space that call for cooling. It's more going to be the air circulation than it is how hard the chiller's running. I don't know if that makes sense, but the number of people in the building does is really a more incremental difference than it is having the systems running. Okay. So it doesn't sound like the return to office doesn't really impact um, how they're heating and cooling the building. They're just going to heat and cool the building. The other thing is, so there are the the requirements of the leases call for a certain temperature range in most cases. The building owner is as concerned about tenant comfort than they are about the energy usage or cost. Oh, okay. If you don't handle that well and your tenant's upset and they move out of your building because you don't keep them comfortable, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a bigger problem than saving five cents on your electric bill, right? Right. Yeah. So I also, doing. the other thing is, from that perspective, it's even more important now because, because of the labor market and employers mm. are really trying to encourage people to come back yeah, or then mandate people come back. But if they're trying to encourage people to come back and that space is not comfortable, employees are going to be like, yeah, no, I'm not coming back. The employee comfort and the tenant comfort is really, really important now. More yeah. important. Than, it's always been important, but it's even more important now. Now, I know in Texas, we've returned a lot sooner and a lot and higher rates than I think the rest of the country, you know, Houston, Dallas, especially Austin, too. However, I think that this year, really, um, 2023, like any of the remaining stragglers kind of were like, okay, now we're really going to, you know, try to have people come back. So I was curious if, if this issue had come up at all or maybe it's not. It's been a topic of conversation since day one of COVID. So nobody knew at first what the ultimate outcome was going to be. It feels like we're starting to get clarity on that. And that clarity feels like if you aren't back to the office by now, you're probably not coming back to the office. It feels like most companies have adopted some version of hybrid work. Right, right. Um, Yeah. 
So another thing I was going to ask about, um, JLL did have a article on this a couple of years ago, but uh, that mentioned, you know, air conditioning, heat, comfort, um, and they it brought brought up a study in 2015 published in the journal Nature Nature Climate Change that talked about basically how the standard temperature, like what is considered kind of standard for room temperature, was developed based on what the average metabolic rate would be for a 40-year-old man wearing a suit who weighs 154 pounds. And the the study pointed out that basically women's average metabolic rate is lower than whatever the standard temperature is. So, you know, there's as a default, they're colder. And that's kind of like some people call the offices during summer, like the women's winter, you know, I mean, but the reality is like it, this does the stereotype is that women are colder, but you know, I have, I I have a male manager who is always complaining about being cold. And we joke that we're like old ladies together and need it to be warmer, but you know, the reality is there's different comfort levels. And that, that standard was the, you know, developed in the sixties when it was much, much more expected that men wear suits. You know, now men, you don't necessarily have to wear a suit, right? You can wear, depending on where you work and uh, you could wear something that's perhaps a little cooler. So I guess I'm kind of curious, like, is it time for that standard to change? Like, do we need to, (laughs) like, how do we kind of define what's supposed to be normal? The practical answer to that is from a building management and tenant relations standpoint, in most cases, you've got a a point person with the building management and a point person with the tenant. And when the tenant has people that are claiming a, complaining about a temperature, they contact the building management and say, hey, we're hot or we're cold or you know, so the reality is that there's whatever the official standard is, the reality standard is we want to keep you comfortable at whatever temperature that mm-hmm. is. Now that becomes a human resources issue within the tenant space. Right. Because naturally, some people are hot, some people are cold. So it depends on where it is in the space and how much you can do. But we don't go by a set temperature. We go by, are you comfortable or are you not comfortable? We okay, want to gotcha. So yeah. if we need to make it a little warmer, we'll try to do that. If we need to make it a little cooler, we'll try to do that. If we need to make it warmer in one area and cooler in another area and we have the ability to do that, we'll do that. So I don't. I think whatever you know, official standard there may have been at one point doesn't really exist in the mm-hmm. real world. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So the other thing I was going to ask about that that article brought up was um, that there were some sort of efforts to have more individualized ways to control thermostats or, you know, whether this is, I'm assuming this could be like a tenant managing a whole floor, their temperature, or I, I don't even know. It almost so- sounds like it could be something that's even more personalized, like in a certain space. I, I'm kind of curious what you're seeing around tenants and individual employees being able to control their. I will say that to whatever degree a building has the ability to manage temperatures to that level, they try to do that. From a practical standpoint, if you can remove hot and cold calls from the building management's office, that's really beneficial. Because just less maintenance calls, calls, you mean? Right, right. The fewer (laughs) calls you get, the better, right? So, 
you know, if you could control your own temperature like you could at your house and your office, you could set the temperature at whatever you wanted and you were happy. That's good for everybody. Right. Most office buildings don't have the ability to control temperature to that level, um, because what that means is that your space has to have its own thermostat. And especially if you've got an open office environment, that's just not possible. If you have a tenant space that's got nothing but private office, mm, and when they yeah. built that space, each office had its own air handler, or not air handler, but but fan-powered box that can control that office temperature with its own thermostat, everybody's happy. But that's pretty rare. It's hugely expensive to do that. So most most of the time, that doesn't happen. The example that was given in this article was at Deloitte's headquarters in Amsterdam, workers could set their temperatures and lighting preferences in an app. But you still have to have the ability to have an individual. Yeah. You can't. If you've got 20 people in a room and everybody's got an app and they're all trying to change one thermostat. Okay. That's just not. You know when it's like (laughs) when you're on the plane. Right. And, you know, like you want to open that little air thing in the top and then. Right. You're like, I hope this isn't annoying anyone around me or, you know, or vice versa. Like, um, so what I guess, have you seen any interesting technologies emerge in this space around tenant comfort slash energy? There are some. So AI is an emerging technology. In yeah. That. Like um, how so? Like, what do you mean when you say well, what the theory behind it is that it can optimize the temperatures it can improve the ability of an existing building system to optimize the temperatures. It's in the early stages. I think there there is hope for that to improve individual comfort without sacrificing sustainability and energy cost, or at the same time, maybe improve comfort or keep the comfort the same and lower the cost a little bit. So we'll see. There are some promising systems out there that are trying to do that but it's still early. That would be, I guess, that the system itself, the building system using AI could learn like... Yes. Yeah, it can anticipate patterns. Theoretically, it could respond quicker than, you know, somebody calling and saying, hey, can you raise my yeah. temperature a couple degrees? And there's a lag between, you know, them recognizing that, them calling, the work order getting in, the, the, the temperature getting adjustment, you know, that it could shorten the lag time on that potentially. How many calls do you think you get or maintenance people get related to? Does it just depend on the building or? It completely depends on the okay. building. Okay. Yeah. And newer buildings are better, you know, than older buildings. Yeah. You know, a lot of the buildings in Houston and Dallas are, you know, now 40 years old. So Right. Know, yeah, yeah. Old. Okay. So you got 40-year-old technology. You might have new chillers and, you know, a, a newer energy management system, but it's still a 40-year-old building. So one thing is, as you're talking about that, is just on technology. So one of the things we look at, um, ERCOT has a really good dashboard that shows current supply and demand of electricity and what the grid conditions are and how much of our current generation is renewables, wind and solar and everything. So we look at that a lot. So just a quick note, um, John talks about ERCOT here, and that's the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. It manages the flow of electric power to more than 26 million customers. It's a nonprofit um, corporation that's subject to oversight by the Public Utility Commission of Texas and the Texas legislature. The things we want to do is anticipate if there's an outage 
another thing we do sort of on the just sustainability and energy side is, and I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here now, but um, part one component of the electric bill is called 4CP. It's the four coincidental peak in June, July, August, and September. And basically that means it's the 15 minute peak of the usage in the entire grid. And so part of your bill is for the next 12 months is what your four CP charges are this year. And so we subscribe to an alert service that says, hey, today is a high probability for a four CP event. And the purpose of that is to make sure there's enough generating capacity during the peaks of those four months. That's pretty important. You want to make sure you're generating ele enough electricity for, you know, the state. Um, and so when we get those alerts, we try to we try to reduce our usage during those peaks to help the grid and also help our bill for the next 12 months. Um, so that's oh, interesting. technology that you use to help manage your usage and your cost. So once again, that was John Myers of JLL. And I think that, um, he, you know, that discussion drives home the point to me that a lot of it is, you know, there's different standards that are have maybe have been developed at a high level, um, you know, and there's different systems that technologies that companies try to use. But the reality is a lot of the um, legwork around managing building temperatures is done, you know, by property managers in conversation with the tenant or company. And a lot of it's um, based on the individual, uh, you know, feedback that they get and how the building itself is designed, how old it is. Um, so I think it really just drives home the point that this is a, actually a, a complicated issue. It seems like a basic question, um, but it can be a pretty complicated issue. So, yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see. I, I mean, fortunately, we're towards the end of this summer. Hopefully, um, don't have, you know, too much longer of this heat. You know, it wasn't 100 degrees today on the day we're recording this, so that's always a plus. But I think, um, you know, as employees are trying to go back to the office, I, I mean, I could see the issue coming up, you know, as as something that it's, um, you know, about making people feel like they want to be there, not just, um, you know, like little popsicles in their cubicles. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you listeners for tuning in. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm at marissa.luck at houstonchronicle.com or on Twitter at marissalex7. And you can find me at rebecca.shoots at houstonchronicle.com or on Twitter at rashoots. That's R-A-S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. And if you like this episode, uh, please share it with a friend. Um, thank you to our print editors, Carol Motzinger and Brian Rausch. Thank you to Farrell Gibbs and his band, All the Kimonos, for the theme music. Thank you to Pirate Studios for editing. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. 